You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Dive in this morning to chapter 1, verse 12, and walk you through chapter 2, verse 11. So if you've got a Bible, turn there. If you don't, there should be one on the little book rack on one of the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those and uh, turn with us to Ecclesiastes. If you've got to use the table of contents to do that, no shame. No shame. Just flip right there to the beginning. Use that table of contents. Find Ecclesiastes and join along with us as we read this morning. I'll begin in verse 12 of chapter 1. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity or vapor, as we said a couple of weeks ago, and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now. I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold... This also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gained for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
Father, I pray this morning, as we enter into this text, that you would illuminate our understanding, that you would help us to receive what you would say to us with an open mind, an open heart, open ears, and a readiness. Lord, a readiness to believe you, to take you at your word. And then, Father, to live like it's true. God, to live like all of the things in this world don't have the power to give any kind of lasting satisfaction. To live like only you do. God, help us today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the, the book of Ecclesiastes is so much more than the ramblings of some armchair philosopher who doesn't have any more time on his hands to do anything other than contemplate the meaning of life. Here in this book, in fact, are the words of a man, a king to be exact who had to sort things out for himself. You see, this is personal testimony. This isn't secondhand. I think I read about it in a book, or I heard something about it on a television show, or I think I read somewhere in a blog written by someone, maybe a so-called expert kind of information. No, this is a firsthand account of a man who set out to see for himself whether or not something lasting could be harvested from the world around him. And so when you and I read this, we don't need to simply read this as the disconnected thoughts of an individual who never tried what he's already told us that the world is like, namely that you can't get anything lasting from it. No, Solomon's going to tell us that he tried it all. And it's no exaggeration. And the Holy Spirit has gifted you and I Solomon's findings as a map of sorts to, to navigate our way to the source of living water as you and I make our way through this vapor world. This vapor world where we are tempted around every corner to do nothing but sip salt water. Now salt water may look like any other source of water, but if you drink enough salt water, what's it going to do to you? It's not going to preserve you, it's going to kill you. And so Solomon this morning would invite us to see all the sources of salt water in the world that we drink from, and he would invite us to spit them out and to drink life-giving water instead. So I want you to see this morning, as we walk through this passage, that this is a king who tried it. This is a king who tried all of it. That's what he tells us. In verses 12 through 14, he says, I, the preacher, I've been king over Jerusalem, and I've applied my heart so as to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done 
under heaven. There's that phrase that appears many, many times throughout this book. Solomon is conducting a personal search, in other words, of all of the things in this life by which we seek after some sort of lasting satisfaction. Here he tells us that he sought and he searched after all that is done under heaven. He says, I saw everything that's done under the sun. Later on, he tells us that he acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before him. Now here in these first few verses we're going to look at today, he gives us a summary of his search. And then in chapter 2, he gives us the specifics So what does he conclude here at the beginning? He's just going to tell us right out of the gate the conclusions that he came to. Number one, we're not just limited by time and space. You and I are cursed. That's what he says. He says in verse 13, it's an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. You see, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they wrecked everything. The entire cosmos turned on them. And now the entirety of creation, it frustrates our very best attempts to harvest something lasting from it or to find any lasting meaning or satisfaction in it. Instead, The creation actively works against our vain attempts to squeeze significance from it. How many of you have experienced your work working against you? Welcome to Reality 101. To the fallen world in which God has given us to live. And I want you to notice something about this world. Believe it or not, though this world is cursed, the curse is actually a gift. How so? God's intention is that your dissatisfaction and my dissatisfaction with the world around us would ultimately drive us away from the things of this world and to the only one who can satisfy our souls. It's exactly why God would not let Adam and Eve eat from the tree of life in the state that they were in. That was an act of judgment, but it was also an act of grace. Because God did not want them to live forever in a world that's broken, full of sin, cursed, and in a world where they would never find ultimate meaning or satisfaction. It's not what they were made for. They were made for life in the presence of God. Secondly, Solomon tells us that this means the search, no matter where it takes us, ultimately comes to nothing. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Look, the picture here is of people running around like shepherds, Pretending and watching one another pretend that we can actually herd the wind. That's the the picture used when he says that all of this is vapor. It's all a striving after the wind. It's shepherding terminology. 
It's as if you and I are carrying around a shepherd's crook and we're trying to herd the wind and make it go where we want it to. Do you have that power? Do you have that ability? I don't. But we play pretend all the time. Thinking that we can somehow make life be exactly what we want it to be so that we can squeeze something lasting out of it. And why is that the case? Solomon tells us right here, what's crooked cannot be made straight. In other words, because you and I cannot reverse the curse that God has placed on planet Earth, we will never be able to squeeze from this place what we would like to squeeze out of it. You see, no matter how hard we try to bend things back the way that they're supposed to be with our ideas or our inventions or our good intentions, we simply cannot do it. We're like people who as we try to shepherd the wind, we lay it out in front of us and we try to count the wind. What's it going to come to? Solomon says, nothing. You can't count it. You know what he says? He says, not even the wisest among us can sort this mess out. Verse 16. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly. And I perceived that this is also a shepherding after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You know what Solomon found? As Solomon increased in wisdom and knowledge and understanding, Solomon was met with more questions than he was answers. The more that Solomon knew, the more that Solomon realized he didn't know. The more that Solomon knew, the more that Solomon realized he couldn't change anything about what he knew. You feel like that? I do sometimes. More knowledge often leads to more sorrow. It's why the saying, ignorance is bliss, is not far from the truth. Now, these are only partial conclusions, okay? The negative side of things. Remember, as I said week one, Ecclesiastes is the kind of book that builds slowly, and that's intentional. How do we actually live in a world like this, a world that's cursed, a world that can't be unbent, a world where you and I, no matter how hard we try, can't figure out how to unbend it? How do we, how do we navigate a place like this? Well, next Sunday we'll begin to see the light break through the darkness in some small ways. For now, though, Solomon is forcing us to sit with an unhappy set of facts. An unhappy set of facts 
as he's about to uncover them through the specific personal experiences that he lays out for us in chapter 2. So the king tried it. He tried all of it. And look at what he says at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So this is test one of two that make up the bulk of chapter two, the second of which we're going to look at next Sunday. But here, notice what he says. Come now, heart, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. The idea being, I'm going to see for myself if the pleasures of this world have anything of lasting meaning and significance to offer humanity. So right out of the gate, Solomon tells us that he turned his attention to pleasure with the express purpose, the express purpose of seeing if he could find something to hang his hat on. In fact, I want you to notice what he says twice in the passage we're looking at today. He tells us in verses 3 and 9 that his wisdom guided him throughout the entire process. In other words, all of this that we're about to talk about was completely and totally intentional. And so all of that is ultimately via the Holy Spirit gift to you and to me. Now I want you to notice this pleasure chronicle that Solomon outlines for us, okay? And in fact, it's all very intentional. It's all very ordered. And the order has a distinct purpose, which I think when you see it, it's going to blow your mind. All right? So where does he start? He starts with laughter. Now, laughter is a good gift from the Lord. But think about laughter as a source of lasting pleasure. Think about not only going to the comedy club, but because you're a king, bringing the comedy club to your castle. And just sitting around listening to comedian routine after comedian routine and laughing it up, trying to, get, try, trying to, trying to harvest some sense of lasting significance from laughter. So he starts there. And then where does he go? He moves on to alcohol. Now notice what he says. He, he drinks, but he says, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom here in order to see that I might lay hold uh, of some sort of life through it. He moves from alcohol to what he calls folly. Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven. What, what's he talking about here? Laughter to alcohol to good times without a care in the world. Think he, think. Sowing his wild oats in his 20s. Okay? Then what did he do? Verse 4. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks. And I planted fruit trees. I made pools. After he's sown his wild oats, what does he do? He goes to work. It's a job. Building projects, to be precise. 
Then what does he do? Verse 7. About male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. So he tries work and then he tries power. Why work when I can get people to do it for me, he says. I am a king after all. So rather than working and doing it himself, he becomes a business owner. Verse 7 again. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been in Jerusalem before me. So through his building projects and his work and his business ownership, he acquires wealth. And with his wealth, he buys a lot of nice things. Where does he go next? Verse 8. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Solomon made investments. Solomon, in fact, diversified his assets by going international. That's what it says. Where to next? I also gathered singers, both men and women. So now Solomon's wealthy enough, Solomon's got enough things under his belt, enough assets around him where he can just try leisure and entertainment. And don't think simply going to a concert here, okay? Here's a king with all the money to invest in this pleasure pursuit, so he doesn't go to the concert, he buys the band and brings them to the castle. Okay? Any act he wants, they come and perform for him. Finally, in verse 8, he says, I got many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Solomon here is at the height of his power and his influence, and he surrounds himself with women who can fulfill his every fantasy. Now, I think in your notes, I've given you the list as it goes throughout the passage. Now, I want you to notice something about it, okay? The order is vitally important. The pleasures basically go from less to more sophisticated. From youth to mature and successful adulthood. So Solomon is talking to every person in this room, no matter your age or your stage of life. I guarantee you that you can find yourself in this list. Whatever pleasure you pursue, Solomon's saying, I've already beat you to the punchline. And here's what I don't want you to do. Don't look at this list and think that because you live in the modern world with more access to perhaps more pleasures than Solomon enjoyed, that you could somehow top his game. Solomon had access to wisdom, wealth, and power beyond what you and I will ever know. And so if you're sitting there thinking, well, Solomon didn't have this, or Solomon couldn't do that, or 
There's no way that Solomon experienced that. Think again. When he said earlier, I tried all of it, he means it. His wisdom, his wealth, and his power gave him access to all of it. By the way, this list is also important because it basically categorizes all of the pleasures that are available to you and me on planet Earth. Think of one that doesn't fit in this list. You can't do it. I tried. They all fit somewhere within the context of Solomon's pleasure pursuit. And you know what he says? He says, I had a lot of fun along the way, and there certainly is a lot of fun to be had in these things. But like a person stranded on a desert island with three board games, there may be fun to be had, but there's always a limit. There's always a limit. Three, don't don't dismiss these categories of pleasure as bad in and of themselves. In fact, everything on this list is a gift from God, and in the right context, these gifts are to be received as a divine blessing. These good gifts become avenues for sin and dissatisfaction when they are misused and handled like God substitutes rather than gifts. You see, at the end of the day, Solomon Solomon is not some divinely ordained killjoy whose sole purpose is to make your life and my life miserable. Ecclesiastes is not designed to rain on your pleasure parade. Not at all. In fact, not even close. And we'll begin to see that next week as we turn the corner to the end of chapter 2. Solomon, however, is a realist. He's a realist who has looked at the world, who has tasted all of its many and varied pleasures, and who can tell us, based not on hearsay, but on personal assessment, as the wisest man who had ever lived up to this point, that there's not any lasting gain to be found in any of it. And that's in spite of the honest admission he makes in verse 10. Look at what he says there. He says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. As I've said, Solomon acknowledges honestly that this pleasure pursuit led to an experience of temporal pleasure in his life. Sin's fun for a season. Right? Pursuing pleasure to try to gain from it some sort of lasting satisfaction, meaning, or significance. It'll get you there for a time. And that's what Solomon says. 
But what he wants us to pay attention to is his sober realization in verse 11. Look at what he says. He says, Then I considered, I reflected upon, I looked back, and I put all the pieces of the puzzle together. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all of it was vapor. It was like trying to shepherd the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So Solomon tried it. He tried all of it. He tried every kind of pleasure. And you know what? He came up empty every single time. Upon careful consideration of all of his pursuits, Solomon concludes that it's all vapor. It's all an attempt, as he's already told us, to shepherd the wind. Now the question is why? And the answer has to do with much more than the simple fact that the things of this world will never satisfy. Go back through Solomon's pleasure chronicle again and notice the excessive focus on self. He begins by saying, enjoy yourself. Treat yourself. I searched with my heart. I made great works. I made myself. I bought. I had great possessions. I gathered for myself silver and gold. I got singers and many concubines. I became great. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. This was my reward for all my toil. You see, Solomon's search came up empty. Not because the stuff of earth simply has no power to give us what only God can, but because his entire pursuit was focused on pleasing himself. You see, to expect to satisfy yourself through only what you can provide yourself is to expect way too much of yourself. Did I put that in your notes? Okay. To expect to satisfy yourself through what only you can provide yourself is to expect way too much of yourself. In one way or another, you and I, all of us, subscribe to the satanic idea that first gripped the hearts of Adam and Eve. If I'm going to be happy, I'm going to have to take my happiness into my own hands. And just as he had with Adam and Eve, so the enemy of our souls wins a victory every time he tricks us into squeezing our lives into the size of our personal dreams, wants, and desires. 
His lie is simply this. Ultimate joy and satisfaction is found when you live for you. That's his lie. Ultimate joy and satisfaction are found when you live for you. And this is what sin does, isn't it? This is exactly what sin does. It causes all of us to shrink our lives down to the size of our lives. It causes all of us to curve in on ourselves and to expect that the world conform to our wants and our desires and our plans and our purposes and our dreams. Me, myself, and I become the unholy trinity in this little claustrophobic kingdom built for one. That's what happens. Now, when you live like this, when I live like this, you and I make the move that no human being was ever meant to make. You say to the king seated on the throne, the one deserving all praise and all honor and all glory and all trust and all obedience, the one who can give you life and joy and peace and rest, uh, excuse me, you're in my seat. That's simple. Now, that's a stark way of putting it. But it is what it is. And here's the thing. If you and I choose to live this way, you and I may enjoy handfuls of pleasure, but you and I will always cart around in our chests an empty heart. And those handfuls of pleasure are going to be nothing more than handfuls of sand that you pick up on the beach. And the tighter you squeeze them, what happens to sand? What happens to it? It just slips right through your fingers. The tighter you hold on to it, the tighter you try to grip it, the quicker you're going to lose it. The quicker the emptiness in your heart is going to show up and show out. In 2005... Tom Brady had already collected three Super Bowl rings. And as many of you know, he just collected his what? Seventh. In 2005, he didn't think three were enough. He said so in a 60 Minutes interview that you can look up and watch on YouTube. Tom Brady said, quote, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, Hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I wonder if at 43, he thinks seven are enough. I don't know. But immediately after his answer, the person interviewing Brady asked him, what's the answer? You know what Brady responded? I don't know. 
What if, uh, what if a friend or a family member, a neighbor or a coworker, said something similar to you? How would you respond? The king tried it. He tried all of it. He tried pleasure of every kind. He came up empty every time. And I want to show you this morning where the Holy Spirit intends his search to lead us. You see, the king's loss is ultimately our gain if we hear in his words the whisper of another king. If we really want an answer to the ache that's in our hearts for something lasting, for something that will finally quench the thirst we feel in our souls for real satisfaction, the Spirit of God is inviting us to hear Christ beckoning us to come to Him. Not just for an answer, but for the answer. Early on in His ministry, in John chapter 4, we find Jesus traveling through the land of Samaria. On His journey, He stops at a well for a drink of water where he just happens to meet a woman who is dying of soul thirst. Now she doesn't know it, but Jesus does. And this is what John writes, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 4. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You don't have anything to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He's the one who gave us this well, and he drank for it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now let's just say that this woman had been looking for love in all the wrong places. Four years. 
In the arms of one man after another, she had tried to find the thing that would satisfy her thirsty soul. And here she's at the end of her rope. Going out at midday, long after all of the other women would have gone to the well, because she's ashamed and embarrassed and doesn't want to have to feel the prying, judging eyes of other people in the village who know everything about her and her past. Not only that, she doesn't want to commit to another marriage because she's unwilling to get hurt again. Enter Jesus, who doesn't condemn her, but invites her to pour out the salt water she's been drinking. And to drink instead from the fountain of living water that he alone can give. To come to him in faith and to find in him what she will never be able to find anywhere else. You see, this is the invitation of Jesus. The compassionate and soul-satisfying king to any and to everybody under the sound of my voice today who will hear his voice. Are you thirsty? Have you tried all of it, or at least some of it, like Solomon? Have you sampled the pleasures of every kind which Solomon tasted, and have you come up empty every time? Do you know the soul thirst that this woman knew? Have you tried it? Jesus says, come to him in faith and find in him only what you will be able to find in him and nowhere else. There's a scene in the silver chair by C.S. Lewis that recounts a stirring interaction between Jill, one of the characters in the book, and Aslan, the great Christ figure of Lewis's the Chronicles of Narnia. Jill has grown thirsty in the forest and she hears the sound of a stream in the distance. Her thirst drives her to find it. Now she knows that there's a great lion about, so she's very cautious. Finally, she sees the stream, but she also sees the great lion sitting still beside the stream. She waits until she just can't take it anymore. Until her parched mouth is so thirsty and dry. And though she hopes the lion will simply walk off, it doesn't. And she inches a bit closer. Suddenly, the lion speaks. If you're thirsty, you may drink. Now this startled Jill, and she held back. Are you not thirsty? Asks the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink. Drink, said the lion. May I, could I? 
would you mind going away while I do? Said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And just as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her near frantic. And Jill said, will you, will you, will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come one step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. Now it did not say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Well, I I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose that I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Now it never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And so her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water with her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Friend, Jesus, the king of everything, calls you to come to him today to quench the thirst in your soul. And he'll say things to you, like if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and come after me. And it'll mean death, certain death to your dreams, desires, plans, and purposes. But when you answer his call and you die to all of that and you come alive to him and what it means to follow him, you'll know satisfaction like you've never known. And you'll have the promise of being with him forever. Is that you this morning? Are you thirsty? Are you standing far off concerned about what it's going to cost you to come to Jesus? If you keep standing there and you keep sipping the salt water around you, you'll die. If you come to Jesus, he's going to ask you to die, but he's going to give you real life in exchange. Man, he does invitation today. He does. Hear it. 
and come experience all that he has to offer you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this word of wisdom from the writings of Solomon this morning. Father, help us not to run too quickly past the things that he considered about the investment he made in the pursuit of pleasure. Help us to not run too quickly past his conclusion that it's all vapor, that it's all a shepherding after the wind. May the one, may the two, may the three, may the ten who need to respond today to this message do so right here and right now. We need you. In some way, we probably all need to respond to this message. Because there's no doubt that we can all find ourselves in Solomon's pleasure pursuit. Lord, in one way or another, we've sought satisfaction from this creation, the kind that can only be given by you. And Lord, if that's If that's how you're calling us to repent today, I pray that we would. And that we would return to you. We ask all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. As we stand and respond in song this morning, I'm right here.